Tonight's reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of your present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want, you to, sp- I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs, Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm not saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting on in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion and has no control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is, not, is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is God's word. Evening. Uh, We've not met. My name's Phil. I'm one of the they're ministers on the staff here, and I think we're all going to need God's help as we look at a rather sensitive subject tonight. So let's pray, and then we'll look at God's word together. Father God, we thank you that your word is true, and we thank you that you are a God who loves all that he has made. And so we thank you that your advice is for our flourishing, not to limit us. And we pray that you would help us to trust this. And so, Father, we ask that the result would be that we leave tonight with a deeper confidence that you are good in what you give and in what you withhold, and you are good in all your ways. Amen. Look, before we actually get to the passage, I need to talk to you about Sherlock Holmes, and I need to talk to you about friendship, if that's all right. Um, Bear with me. Actually, it is relevant, I promise. Uh, Who saw the Sherlock Holmes Christmas special? 
Who understood it? Yeah, yeah, good. I'm not the only one. I had not got a clue what was going on. Yeah, are you, okay, fine. You were at Imperial. I understand. Anyway, um, there was a moment in it where they're back in Victorian times. I presume even those who didn't watch it know Sherlock Holmes is. Okay. Surely I can get away with that cultural reference. They're back in Victorian times. And Victorian Dr. Watson is talking to Victorian Sherlock Holmes. And Victorian Dr. Watson is saying, he's, he's quizzing Sherlock Holmes on why on earth he's never seen him with a woman. Uh, his distinct lack of a love life is rather troubling to Dr. Watson. He says, surely there's, there's someone. I mean, surely you've, you know, been with a woman. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's not, you're not normal, he says. You see, Sherlock Holmes is a bachelor. And that is just a weird thing, to be a lifelong, unmarried person. So naturally, as his friend, Watson wants to, to find out about this weirdness. Or at least he does in the modern version of Sherlock Holmes. If you go to the books, which I haven't read, I only know the things that have been on TV. But if you, I spoke to somebody this week who's read all of the Sherlock Holmes books. There are 60 of them that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote, from uh, A Study in Scarlet to uh, The Adventure at Shoscombe Place. And never once in all of them does Watson, in the originals, find it necessary to ask Sherlock Holmes to explain why he's a bachelor. It's never discussed, never questioned, never even raised. Because back then it was just perfectly normal. Most people did get married, but a significant number didn't. And it's not that they were all, uh, they were just all gay and repressed. Uh, I'm sure some were in, in a time when um, you couldn't be openly gay, but not all of them. Actually, it was just normal. It was okay in that culture not to get married. It was accepted as a, as a fine choice in life. But in our sex-mad culture, that's just weird. That's nuts. That's just way, way out there. You see, we so idolize sex and romantic relationships that we think... You can't be living a full, a fulfilled, a happy life unless you're romantically involved. So I've got to sort this out for you. And in spite of the fact that sexually transmitted diseases are getting to epidemic levels in this country, and in spite of the fact that 11-year-old children text pictures of their genitals to each other, and in spite of the fact that it's normal client entertainment to go to strip bars in the city, we think we are the culture that is normal. And we think we're well-balanced and right-thinking and they're the ones who've got the explaining to do. We don't come to a passage like this in a neutral position. We come with a particular cultural framework and ours, I've got to say, is an odd one. Historically and globally, it's an odd one. The other thing, uh, and that's related to that, and that impacts how we read 1 Corinthians 7, is our view of friendship. Just as we have this insanely high view of sex and romantic relationships, I think we have a correspondingly dangerously low view of friendship. When someone you fancy says, I'd like us to be good friends, you know what they mean is, I want you at arm's length. I want a less intimate, less deep, less involved relationship with you. Friendship is a sort of a downgrading of affection and relationship. In our culture, it's what C.S. Lewis memorably termed as a sort of vegetarian substitute for the more organic loves. Isn't that a brilliant <laughs> phrase? And so in our digitized culture, we have thousands of friends whom we hardly know and perhaps haven't ever physically met. 
We ditch old friends and we pick up new ones quite easily when we move. And rarely are we intentional about friendship. Friendship isn't something that, by and large, we're, we're thinking about. We're, very few of us, when we sat down at the beginning of this year, thought, you know what, what I really want to work at is think, how do I grow and deepen my friendships? How can I help our friendships grow and flourish? How can I invest in them? We just don't think in those sort of terms about friendship. Uh, one guy I talked to this week said, friendship these days is disposable. It's a temporary thing to tide you over until you find someone to sleep with quite blunt but actually it does capture where our culture is this is not a healthy culture the bible is full of explicit teaching and examples to help us see the importance of friendship the reason i've uh, i wanted to go through that is that we need to understand if we come to 1 corinthians 7 thinking our culture is normal and healthy and right we will never listen to god's word If the attitudes of the the Sherlock Christmas special and Downton Abbey's Desperate Lady Edith, if those are the things that we think are, that's the right way to think, then we will find what the Bible says just utterly implausible or undesirable. And either way, we might cognitively understand what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, but it will bounce off our hearts and leave us totally unaffected. And so we need to pray that our hearts are shaped by God's truth And that we're willing to be humble enough to recognize our culture may not have it all right. Now we're um, we're diving back into the second half of 1 Corinthians 7. We've been working as a church through the book of 1 Corinthians in the evenings. And Paul is writing to a church in a city which is every bit as sexually confused and active as London today. And so in this young church, you've got a whole, a whole load of people who are probably wildly sexually active and they've turned to follow Jesus and they're like, okay, what do we do now? Because you, uh, we get the impression that's probably not all right. Um, So how should we live? And in the first half of chapter 7, he's taught them... um, Actually, I should do first half over here, shouldn't I? Because we go that way anyway. Anyway, in the first half of chapter 7, he's taught them, okay, what does marriage look like if you follow the Lord Jesus and you want to live a life informed by the fact that he's coming back? And in the second half, he's now going to look at what does it look like if I'm not married and I want to obey Jesus? What does it look like if I'm not yet married? So... It's very important to recognize this is not everything the Bible says about um, being not being married. And Paul is actually addressing specific questions that a church has, has asked him. So throughout the letter, you'll see it says, now about, now about, as he addresses questions they've, they've sent him in a letter. Uh, lastly, I probably should say, look, I'm not going to stand here as a married man and argue it's so much better to be single. And if I'd only read this chapter nine years ago, I would be single too. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to patronize you with something stupid. I don't regret getting married. I hope my wife doesn't regret marrying me. Uh, um, and this chapter doesn't tell me I should. What does it do? What it does do is it actually says, look, that culture too devalued singleness. It devalued the unmarried life. And Paul says, look, I want you to realize there are real genuine, tangible benefits in not marrying. In particular, if it is that you want to give your life to serving God, if God really is number one, then then actually it's something worth considering. And he wants to, to remind us that any decisions in life, in particular big decisions that have an impact on the direction of your life, must be informed by, must make sense in the light of the fact that Jesus is soon to return. Okay. That's a long introduction. Let's get into the text. 
So firstly, spare yourself trouble and troubled times. Verse 25, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So the Corinthians had, it seemed, asked him uh, whether unmarried Christian girls, virgins, should stay married, uh, should, should get married, or should stay unmarried. And Paul can't quote Jesus because he didn't speak about this particular issue. And it's very comforting, encouraging to, to recognize they, they don't put words in Jesus' mouth, the apostles. They're very clear when Jesus speaks and when he, he hasn't spoken about something. Uh, but although Jesus hasn't spoken, Paul is Jesus' apostle, as he says right at the end of the chapter, verse, um, verse 40. He has the Spirit of God, and therefore he is able to give them real and useful advice. Verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you that. The first thing we see here is that it is a matter, do you see in verse 28, not of morality... It's not a right and wrong, it's a matter of wisdom. We're not in the realm of right and wrong, but of sensible, useful, practical, wise. Secondly, what he says is very much affected by something that he calls in verse 26, this present crisis. Now, annoyingly, Paul doesn't tell us what that is, so we don't know. But that's never stopped me speaking. Uh, No. (laughs) Um, So what is going on? What is going on? We don't know for sure, so we've got to tread lightly, but from the the New Testament, from the book of Acts, and from ancient history, we know that there are a number of very severe famines at this time. And so it may well be that Corinth is in the grip of one of those. Some major upheaval is going on, and that leads Paul thirdly to give the advice. Verse 26, this is no time to make major life changes. Do you see that's what he basically says? Because of this present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. And in particular, verse 28, if you get married, it will bring troubles in this life. Well, if he's thinking about a a time of major crisis, to get married at that point is to take on a major responsibility, to add a a huge layer of emotional complication and commitment at at the very time when it's more likely than ever that one of you is going to die. And in the days before contraception, marriage is almost inevitably going to lead to children. Now, do you really want to to be pregnant or to have a vulnerable newborn baby when uh, there's a plague or famine or civil unrest and rioting going through. So this first bit of advice is is really colored by a particular issue at Corinth, a short-term thing, uh, famine, disease, civil unrest, whatever it is. But he's basically saying, look, when the Titanic is sinking and you're running across a sloping deck trying to find the lifeboat, that is not the time to drop down on one knee and propose. It's... It may be a great romantic gesture, but it's actually really stupid. And it's not fair either. It's not fair to stir up emotional bonds and to deepen emotional ties at the very point when one of you could well die. And so Paul says, look, be sensible. I want to spare you trouble. This really isn't the time to be, uh, for that to be the number one thing on your mind. But then in the following verses, he broadens things out and he gives us principles that apply not just at that point, but for all time. So secondly, live now in the light of eternity. Verses 29 to 31. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. 
Now, it's a bit of a clunky translation. Now, you could paraphrase it as a more accurately, really, is, you know what, uh, things are pretty bad in Corinth right now, uh, but that is just an extreme version of what is always true, which is that uh, life could be very short because the Lord Jesus may return at any moment. So there's a particular reason you're aware of the brevity of time in Corinth right now, but actually time is always short in, in a very real sense until the Lord Jesus returns. Okay, how can he say time is short in AD 55 and I stand here and read it in AD 2016 with a straight face? And you're like, short? We have a very different understanding of short, Paul. Well, the point is, it's not that Jesus will return tomorrow. That's not what he's saying. But his point is, he could return. There is nothing else that needs to happen before Jesus will come back. So while no generation of humans since Jesus um, ascended to heaven is guaranteed you will be the last generation, no generation is guaranteed that it won't be the last generation either. And even if the Lord Jesus doesn't return in our lifetime, you and I will die within the next 30, 40, 50 years. So time is short. And our lives should be shaped by the fact that we will soon stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. And he, the Lord Jesus, will be the dividing point for our eternal destiny. And that changes everything. So he carries on. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Married couples, you need to understand, you won't be married in heaven. You won't be married for all eternity. Your marriage is temporary. And so it's important to live in the light of that and to invest yourselves, not just in your marriage, but also in things that will last into eternity. Verse 30, those who should mourn as if they did not. Now, I know somebody at this church buried a close relative this week. Paul's not saying, act as if death doesn't hurt, laugh it off. But he is saying that the way that we grieve, the way that we mourn, should be coloured by the fact that death is not the last word. It's not a full stop, it's a comma, if you trust in Jesus Christ. Those who die trusting in Jesus will rise to eternal life. And so if you trust in Jesus, while death is painful, it is not eternal. And that makes all the difference. Uh, Verse 30, those who are happy as if they're not... You see, the greatest happiness that you can ever experience on earth will be nothing to compare to the happiness of heaven. 30 to 31, as he talks about those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. See, we won't take our bank balances, our eye gadgets, our cars, our houses. We won't take any of it with us to God's remade world because there'll be a whole lot of better stuff there. We won't need it. So sit loosely to it here. Don't act like it is desperately important to you. You'll only have it for the brief few years of this earth. But for all of eternity, you'll have much better things. And so he finishes, verse 31, this, the world in its present form is passing away. The fact that Jesus will soon return changes everything. Everything. Now, I guess... Um, Any normal Sunday, there'll be a number of us here who wouldn't call ourselves Christians. And you're probably listening to this and you may well look at some of the decisions your Christian friends make and think, that is stupid. 
It, make, it makes no sense at all the way you run your lives sometimes, some of the decisions you make. Good. It shouldn't. It really shouldn't. But it's not that uh, where Christians, they're people of uh, faith rather than reason. They just do illogical, stupid things. No, Christians apply the same logic that you do. It's the set of facts that are different. They're applying the same logic, working out life, uh, taking decisions exactly the same way that you are. It's just they're working from a different set of facts. You see, in history as a fact, Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay for sins. In history as a fact, he rose to new life and was seen by eyewitnesses. And one day it will be a historical fact. In fact, it will be the end of history. He will return back to the world. And if you believe those things, if you're convinced they're true, you're bound to live life differently, to come to different conclusions, to make different decisions from someone who thinks this world is all that there is. So the pressing question is not, is is he mad for giving up that relationship? Is she mad for turning away from that career? The question is, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? That is the most important question in all of history. And you could do a whole lot worse than, than spend some serious time in 2016 investigating that for yourself. He then carries on. And the third thing I think we really see here is that uh, he calls us to live a life devoted to the Lord. As he now applies the principle that he set out in 29 to 31. So 29 to 31, he, he said, live now in the light of eternity. And he says, in particular, live devoted to the Lord. Uh, look at verses 32 to 35 with me. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, an undivided devotion to the Lord. So again, he's not giving us commands, he's giving us wisdom, counsel, advice. And his basic point is that we should seek to live lives devoted to the Lord, concerned with his affairs. Now, of course, you can serve the Lord if you're married. Of course, married couples can be very devoted to the Lord. Uh, I think lots of the married couples here do an enormous amount. If the married couples here stop doing what they're doing, there'll be a huge number of things not happen in church. And of course, you can be unmarried and be just devoted to yourself. He's not saying that uh, marriage is inherently selfish and unmarried people are inherently servant-hearted towards Jesus. All he's saying is that there are certain undeniable advantages that most unmarried people have when it comes to serving God. I spoke to a number of people this week uh, to ask them about this. Uh, people who are married, about what it had been, how it, things have changed for them. People who are not married, about um, what their experience of it is. And it's interesting, almost all of them use the same two words, freedom and flexibility. When you're not married, you are free and flexible to respond to needs and opportunities. You can throw yourself into things without having to bring somebody else along with you in the decision. You don't have to check with somebody else's schedule. You don't have to compromise with somebody else, run it by somebody else. Uh, the marrieds all commented as they looked back, they just had more time to serve. A lot of them said, I may not have used it that way, but now as I look back, I had a whole lot more time to serve than I do now. Um, and especially once kids arrived. 
And lots of the married couples, interestingly, said, it's much harder to have a quiet time now I'm married. Just there's, there's somebody else in the house who I need to talk to about what's happening later. There's somebody else in the room. It's just a whole lot harder to maintain my relationship with God, if I'm honest. It's very interesting. A number of them said that. You know, the more extreme end, I've got married friends uh, and the husband and wife just cannot agree on the same church. He's just not happy at the churches she's happy in and she's really unhappy at the churches he's happy in. Another um, uh, good friend of mine, his, uh, his wife's just decided she doesn't want to go to church anymore and she doesn't want the family going either. It's pretty hard to be devoted to the Lord when, when you're in those situations. But Paul actually, he's not really writing about the extreme end. He's just reflecting the basic truth that when you have to factor in someone else, a partner, a family, well, life's a lot less simple. And when you don't have to, you're much freer to choose. How do you you use the resources of your time, your money, your energy to serve Jesus Christ? Now, Paul doesn't write this way because he's got a low view of marriage. It's very, very important we recognize that. He's not saying this because he he doesn't like marriage because he's not married. Uh, He has a very high view of marriage, which is why he says this. He says, if you're going to be married, you see in Ephesians 5, it needs to reflect the love that Jesus has for the church. You've got to really give yourself to your marriage if you're going to be married. And so he says, look, it's going to take time and effort and focus. So you need to be aware that you're going to have to cut back on some things. So it's just a basic fact. You will have less time. You will be less free. And so he then comes to summarize really what he's got to say in verses 36 to 40. And it's important that we get to there because uh, otherwise you can, uh, you can get a sort of unbalanced idea of what he's been saying. But he basically comes to the conclusion. He says, look, marriage is good. Singleness is better if you're thinking about freedom to serve God. If you're thinking about being free to serve God, if you want to maximize that, marriage is good, but singleness is better. Verses 36 to 38. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly towards the virgin he's engaged to, and if she's getting on in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who settled the matter in his own mind, who's under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. Now, verse 36 is actually really, really hard to translate. Uh, the word getting on in years um, means overripe. And it could just as... <laughs> just say, it could, and, and it's used in a whole variety of ways. It could, it could be talking about the, um, the bride's years, or it could actually be talking about the, the groom's desires. And he just can't, he just can't keep his hands off her, it could be saying. It's, it's, it's really hard to work out what's saying. It's saying, look, if, if the couple have been together and they're thinking, actually, maybe we'll stay apart for the sake of the Lord's service. It, you know, there's all sorts of ways of understanding what he's, why he gets to where he gets to. So in one sense, shelve that. The point is, what he says is, if you decide to marry, that's fine. You're not sinning. It's not a morality thing, which is a great relief, I know, to a number here. But equally, he says, if you decide not to pursue marriage and you think you're okay with that, it's much better for the sake of serving God, for all the reasons he's just set out. And many here will know, in the last century in London, there were three significant church leaders who built under God churches from almost nothing to massively significant ministries that have had a huge impact on this country. Uh, Dick Lucas, John Stott, Jonathan Fletcher, all of them bachelors, all of them able to devote enormous amounts of time 
because they didn't have to devote time to family. I'd never heard of uh, Hannah Moore. Um, Jules has been reading a book, uh, Fierce Convictions. She was a, a friend of, the, of William Wilberforce, lived around that time. In her professional career, she was a playwright and a poet and was highly acclaimed, uh, shows if, showing the equivalent of the West End, all this sort of thing. But she didn't marry, and so she, had, uh, she was able to invest her time. And it's incredible what she achieved. She was a prolific author. Uh, some of her books were translated and published uh, up to two million copies of some of her shorter books, especially at works encouraging Christian morality. She had an enormous impact as a moral campaigner, helping uh, just turn the tide of immorality in this country and help make uh, morality fashionable, really. She was also a philanthropist in the West Country where there were terribly low standards of education. Don't make any jokes about West Country people here. They're, but where at a time when there were really, really low standards of education, uh, she founded 20 schools herself and helped see the um, uh, literacy and numeracy grow enormously and help others do the same. She had a prolific impact on the country, had an enormous spiritual legacy because she was able to throw herself wholeheartedly into doing those things. And the, the history of world missions is littered with stories of people who, because they weren't married, were able to go to dangerous, dark, difficult places. They didn't have to convince somebody else to come with them. They didn't have to wrench with the decision of, is it right to take a family here? As you read biography after biography after biography, from Eric Little, Gladys Aylward, and on. Because the simple fact is that actually you are just free and flexible and able to do things. Now, Paul ends with a reminder that not everything to do with marriage is a free choice. He said marriage is good, singleness is better. Just a fact. But not everything is, is a free choice. Christians must marry Christians, verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. And then he uh, finally says in verse 40 that happiness is not only found in marriage. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. Not just more fruitful. Do you notice? Happier. And I think I too have the spirit of God. Okay. What does this mean for us in practice? Or if you like, what, what does Paul expect us to do as a result of this passage? I don't think he expects a whole load of cancelled engagements. Um, statistically, most here will marry. And I think Paul expects that, and Paul's happy with that. But there are three big things if we get this, and actually these are things for all of us as a whole church family. So these three, don't switch off if you're married. These are things for all of us. Don't idolize marriage. Don't treat singleness as a medical condition and work at family life. Those are the three things I really want to say as we close. Firstly, don't idolize marriage. Married people here. The married couples need to be honest and not pretend things are better than they are. Almost every marriage has major struggles and disappointments. Simple fact. You won't find an honest married couple who disagree with that. Church is family. And so it's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. It is healthy for us to be honest about what life is really like. We don't wear masks. We don't need to. We've confessed our sins. We've spoken about how utterly hopeless we are. Why would we wear masks after the service, having confessed our sins in the service? It doesn't help uh, struggling marriages if 
all the other married couples walk around saying, you know what, it's great, happily ever after. And it doesn't help those who are not married trust Christ and grow in contentment. So be honest, be honest. And don't believe the lie of love actually and Downton Christmas special. Don't fill your head and your heart with the message that true happiness is only found in a romantic relationship. True happiness is only found when I'm sexually active. See, marriage is good. The Bible's very clear on that, but it is not God. It is not the one thing that you must experience for your life to have meaning. You see, as soon as we say that, we're saying marriage is God. If I say, this is the thing I must have for my life to have meaning, for me to be fulfilled, then I've made it into God. And it's not. Jesus is not only God, he is the perfect human being. And he lived a full human life and he never married. So it is okay to get married. It is okay to long to get married. It is okay to seek to do stuff, to to make marriage happen. Just don't think you're living half a life unless and until you marry. Unless you're happy to say Jesus lived half a life. Don't think not marrying is being left on the shelf unless you're happy to say Jesus, well, he was left on the shelf. Don't think not marrying, well, it's just a second best life. Unless you want to say Jesus' life, second best, unfulfilled. Didn't really achieve much, bit of a failure. And don't think marriage will solve all your problems. Actually, that's probably putting it too strongly. I don't think any of us actually think marriage will solve all our problems. But perhaps more pointedly, don't think marriage will make you as happy as you think it will when you're not married. Don't think marriage will make you as happy as you think it will when you're not married. It does bring companionship. It does help with loneliness. But I tell you, I've counseled enough couples to know that the loneliness of a, of a difficult marriage is a whole lot harder and sharper and more bitter than the loneliness of not marrying. See, ultimately, if marriage was that amazing, there would be marriage in heaven. If heaven is perfection and paradise and joy and happiness, then there would be marriage in heaven if marriage was that good. But there won't be because marriage is a picture of our relationship with God, of our intimacy with God, of our union with God. And we'll have the reality so we won't need the, the faint image, the two-dimensional stick drawing, because we'll have the glorious, full, rich reality. So don't idolize marriage. Secondly, let's not treat singleness as a medical condition. I mean that seriously. It's, it is undeniable that there are costs to not marrying, not experiencing romantic love, or not having biological children. And it's hard. It's especially hard in a society like ours that just doesn't value being unmarried but it should not be that way in church i would love us to be the sort of church where it's okay and normal for for people to say um i'm single i'm okay with that i'm not sure i will marry and for them not to feel like there's then this relentless pressure on them to pair up if they don't want to that shouldn't come from within our church it should be all right for people to say i'm not sure i will marry but just as important thirdly let's work at our family life you see It's no good saying it's all right for people to say, I think I'm going to stay single, unless we make this church the sort of place where the unmarried life is not the single life. I've tried not to use the word single in this sermon because I just think it's unhelpful. It gives all the wrong impression of what life should be. There's there's relational life or there's single life. 
That is not the Bible's picture because the Bible says if you're part of church, you are in a family. And biological family is just a, is a, is a picture, a sign of the true family. So life in a church family, whether you're married or unmarried, should never be lonely or isolated. And when I think about that, I guess I do think that I and probably most of us need to repent and change a bit. I don't mean that too harshly. I just mean it's hard in central London with disparate lives to, to make real family. And so we're going to have to work really hard to do that. We need to generate a culture in church where it's normal for people not to get married and where you're not relationally poor if you don't. See, church should be more than just a network of relation, of friendships. I think this is something I've, I've been reflecting on this week. Church shouldn't just be a network of friendships. It needs to be a family, and there are differences. See, in a family, you have strong relationships with people who are slightly different from you, different ages, older, younger, male, female, married, unmarried. And that's down to all of us. And tentatively, I wonder if we're as strong as we could be here. See, men, you need sisters as well as brothers. I think we're great at encouraging uh, the, the men to, to form strong friendships amongst each other and the women to form strong friendships amongst each other. But I wonder whether we could do more to, uh, to reach out with our friendships, to, to act like family. Uh, guys, you need sisters as well as brothers. Girls, you need brothers as well as sisters. And those who are not married need friends who are married. And those who are married need friends who are not. And we're going to have to work at that because we're busy. Time is precious. We're under pressure. But it matters. We need to commit to church if we're going to do that. Uh, I read um, an article that in New York people talk about couples who marry young as being on their starter marriage. Is that an appalling thought? Because, well, it's probably not going to last. That's all right. I think a lot of people come to CCM with that view of church. That, you know, it's central London. I'll be here for a couple of years. It's a temporary thing. And so, sadly, I think people don't fully commit always, don't forge deep friendships. This is not a starter church. This is not a commuter church. This is a real church. This is Jesus' church. You are my brothers and sisters. And as you look around, this is your family. Invest in them, commit to them, build deep friendships. Don't move on quickly or easily. Commit to serving them. It was very interesting. One of the things that um, a number of people said to me in emails this week was that the times I feel least lonely are when I'm most committed to serving other people. The time I feel most relationally fulfilled is when I'm most committed to serving other people. Let's give ourselves to others. Let's build a community that is rich and deep. And that's down to all of us. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would uh, help us in this. We pray that you would help us to be different from London. Father, we ask for your forgiveness for the times we've let each other down. And we pray that those of us who have been let down would not hold grievances. And we pray that all of us would seek to give our time, our efforts, our energy. And we pray that, Father, that as you look on and as the world looks in, you would see a real family that loves one another. 
Father, we beg you that uh, the Lord Jesus would be glorified by the way that we love each other. Amen. Look, as I said at the end of the, the, um, the sermon on the first half of 1 Corinthians 7, this does raise difficult, painful, um, deeply emotionally hurtful issues for many of us. Uh, and so please don't go away confused or feeling trapped or angry with God uh, about any of the things that have been said. Please do pray with one another. Come and talk to me. Uh, come and pray with me. Uh, or come and talk to or pray with some of the staff. But please don't walk away feeling angry. Um, it's, it's good to, God's word doesn't shy away from difficult things, but it's good not to walk away. Let's, uh, let's work these things through.